Hello and welcome to From the Platform, Series 2, Episode 2. I'm Tom. I'm Naomi. Uh, S2E2. S2E2. Um, so, Tom, it's been ages since we did S2E1. So what was S2E1 about? So the first episode, we laid down some foundations around things that we internalise. We talked about how the first series was a set of things that could be called psychotechnologies, tools that we can like use as lenses to look at the world through and glean insights about. So I guess you'd call them models, wouldn't you? That's the word for them that I've heard of before. Yeah. yeah and you've yeah. got a model for various things. Mm-hmm. And so those are new ones that we're adding on to kind of our existing way of seeing the world. But you can also kind of turn this in on itself and say, hold on, there are tools that we use already that have become internalised, entirely unconscious, that just, I guess, it's part of our culture, right? Mm-hmm. It's part of the way we always do things. So we don't actually kind of take the time to stop and take the lens off and look at it and go, oh, okay, I'm aware that I'm looking at the world through a lens. And doing this is kind of quite insightful as to why we as a culture, whether that's like a Western culture, Christadelphian culture, a work culture, why we see things the way we see things, because they actually narrow our focus in, sense, in some senses. We looked in the last episode at the technology of literacy and how like we going from pictographs to alphabetic language really heightens the, the model of literacy. What you can do with literacy suddenly advances for a vast part of the population when it becomes an alphabetic literacy. And that is a technology. Literacy is a technology. It's not something that we're born with. Okay, so you're saying in series one, we learned about psychotechnologies or just sort of models of types of conversation. And and we talked about things like bias and nuance and all that kind of stuff and polarisation. So in the new series, you want to talk about that kind of similar things, but when they're kind of embedded in our culture, and we're not really aware of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to look at some history, specifically a period of history called the Axial Revolution. And from this revolution come some psychotechnologies that we, I feel, have embedded. The Axial Revolution happens from around 800 BC. So you're thinking like from the Babylonian captivity, this is kind of like it's it, it kind of happens across that period of time and then at the end of it certain ideas come to a head within hebrew like biblical literature within greek thinking and philosophy and also in the east in kind of india and within buddhism i guess kind of as a caveat before we get into this properly this is going to take a little bit of work there's a little bit of kind of you maybe need to be patient with some of this stuff but I think it'll be rewarding when we get to the to the end of it. Yeah, so just to recap, we're going to look at these kind of three things that come out of the actual revolution. But first, what's the actual revolution, I think, is kind of the burning question I know you're all asking. What happens in the actual revolution, or at least the part of it that we're interested in, is a shift in the worldview of the majority of people, at least in the sense of what we can glean from, like, cultural records that have been left behind that this is the case Mm -hmm. and so the worldview that we start with is this kind of i want to say cyclical i'm not sure that's the right word but the idea that maybe you're born as a peasant right and there is no chance that you will ever become a pharaoh or a king you're just in your community 
there's a caste system. Mm. There is there's many myths and narratives about about what your purpose is and and, and how you. So you're talking about narrative at the moment. The fact that people have a narrative of their life. No. What does this relate to? So this is about your life doesn't have a narrative. It you're just the same thing. Okay. And if and so if this you, has something to do with the axial revolution. Yeah. That so this is kind of pre-axial age is, is where we're mm-hmm. starting here. And this is the idea that you're a peasant, you're going to stay a peasant and your children will be peasants. If there's anything like reincarnation that you believe in, you'll come back as a peasant, mm-hmm. right? Then there's the pharaohs and the kings who are like, when we die, we're reborn as the pharaoh again, right? There's nothing we can do to stop us being pharaoh that like that will never change we will always or, or the emperor in babylon we will always kind of maintain this position and if we die we're going to be reborn as that so this is kind of like and there's like a priestly caste and like there's no movement across these social boundaries okay so i guess and that was something that was probably held in place and promoted by powerful people because people want mm. to hold their social status and i think we've talked maybe about the babylonian creation myth uh before i want to say noom elish is that the right one yeah i think that is right the noom elish it's a propaganda to keep this idea going and that's the idea that there's these two gods the saltwater god and the freshwater god and in their being together they sustain the order of the world right and then some minor gods come along and they decide that they're gonna kill one of the gods, which there's Tiamat and another one. One of them gets killed. I think Tiamat gets killed. And the other god comes on and just causes utter chaos comes. Chaos kind of crashes down and, and engulfs everything. And it's the job of Nimrod, the emperor, to take on this god that's kind of caused chaos in order to regain some sort of order. Right. So first of all, there's the the idea that if you mess with the symbiotic nature of the caste systems of, of the place of things, then chaos comes mm-hmm. and destroys everything. And it is the job of the emperor to wrestle back order and maintain it. And every year he goes through this ritual kind of festival in order to enact this process. And it's say, and it's saying I'm the emperor and I maintain order. And and the way that our society is structured maintains order. If you revolt, if you change who you are and try and be something different and step outside of your position, chaos will come again. Mm-hmm. So these are things that are like pre-2000 BC. Then. Pre-axial, we're talking like ancient, ancient. Uh, this is before the axial revolution happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so there's this idea that if you're born into a particular way of being, you stay there. There's no, you don't think of yourself as, oh, what could I become? What could I be? Who could I? Um, there was no Disney. There was no princess that, you know, there's no, no frog becoming a prince. None of those stories kind of existed. The stories are all about maintaining the symbiotic relationship of the caste system in order to maintain order. Mm-hmm. And if you disrupt that, then chaos comes and everything gets kind of totally destroyed. So maybe we can see with literacy how this technology enables you to actually realise that things don't always stay the same. In fact, not even your own ideas stay the same because you can write something down that you think is a great idea and you can come back to it later and, and, you know, we all do this and go, what was I thinking about? That was like rubbish. Um, Like, and you can improve upon ideas. You can 
you can change the way that you think you can yeah manipulate it or amend it in in a way and i guess writing gives you an external memory as well doesn't it so you can write your ideas down you don't have to hold everything in your brain at once so it just gives you an extension of your kind of consciousness and your ideas so you can have more and develop more ideas and develop your ideas more post the axel revolution which means after there was a worldview in which you as the individual can develop and grow you can change who you are and you can become something else you can go mm-hmm. from slavery to the promised land uh, you can go from being ignorant of many of the things in the world to rationalizing them and understanding them and kind of using that information to be to become better to us as Westerners, it's like well isn't that always how we've thought about the world so you're kind of talking about things that are so embedded in the way the world works now that it's difficult to imagine that it ever wasn't the case because to me it feels like well that's not too different to many places in the world today where it's impossible to break out but is it the idea of you can like the american dream Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. there is a potential like people have done it Mm. so yeah i think what you'll find is the Axel Revolution didn't completely get rid of the previous worldview, but the shift in the mindset of the population of the world was such that it changes the course of history. And it's called Axial because it is this turning point. And of course, you'll find that the more communal your society is, the more dependent it is on sustaining a status quo, and you'll still get stories about not changing or about serving the group. But what the Axial Revolution provides with literacy and also with the development of currency is the ability for individuals or smaller groups to become more independent. Obviously, that has only continued in the West and has been taken to the extreme. But in the East, there's still lots of intergenerational family groups and that maintains a tradition of duty and honour, etc., and within those, there's, there's a dependency on the group. Um, so I thought about the fact that there's certain ways of thinking now that we can't imagine thinking about in a different way because they're so embedded in us. But actually, it turns out the idea of a life in which you can, I guess, kind of live in a different place or have a different social strata or learn new things or progress as a person. Those weren't kind of ways of thinking or thinking about your life. So you said that was just like a background thing. So um, you said there were three strands of like philosophy that come out of that new way of thinking. And what are those three strands? I'd like to know all three because I like to have a full picture in my head. The main idea of the actual revolution is people beginning to abstract themselves into a future that's different to the one that they're in. Mm-hmm. And you can start striving towards that future. Mm. So kind of a lot of the Old Testament stuff about the Israelites is quite... Yeah, shall I read you um, a bit from John Viveki that puts this far eloquently than I can about... this. So this is one of the strands, is the Hebrew biblical mm. strand. Okay, go to this. Uh, there's an important psychotechnology that's invented or at least significantly developed by ancient Israel. It's a psychotechnology of understanding time as a cosmic narrative, a story. It's applying something that's universal. A story has a beginning, it has some crucial climax, a turning point in it, and there's resolution. There's a direction to it, there's a purpose to it. So you get this idea of 
cosmic history of using our skills for story to explain how the cosmos is unfolding through time. It's a radical idea, but why is it radical? Well, notice the difference here to the what's called the continuous cosmos, which is the one where you're stuck in a cycle. That is not an open future. Uh, you are condemned to repeat it. But here, the future is open in the cosmic history. If you figured out how to participate in the story, your actions can change the future. There is an ongoing creation through history, and you can participate with God in the ongoing creation of the future. How? Because how do stories operate? They operate in terms of meaning and morality. How you make meaning, the moral content of your action, decides how things are going to go. This is why the God of ancient Israel is such a different God. You look at the gods of the pre-axial world, you've got a God and it's the God of a place, a particular function. There's the God of weaving or the God of ancient Thebes. The gods are located in place, they're tied to function. They have no significant moral arc attached to them. What's the God of the Old Testament? What is he or she like? It's not bound to time and place. Think of the great story of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. Here you have the Israelites and they are imprisoned. They are imprisoned in the epitome of the Bronze Age world, Egypt. And God comes and liberates them and sets them on a journey towards a future that is promised, the promised land. This God moves through time and space. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the open future. That's why at first he has no name, because just to name something is to locate it, to specify it, to tie it down. And for the longest time, God has no name. And he goes on to talk about, um, like, I am that I am being, I will be what I will be. Yeah, so that's, I think that's a really interesting mm. He was also too long, didn't listen. <laughs> so for any listeners that did zone out a little bit, could you summarise that a bit? So the God of the Bible... Is not a god that's in a in a single location or for a particular function. He's not. He's not like the god of mm-hmm. cheese making or the yeah, god of vineyards. He he's a god that is not fixed in location. In fact, he is a god that takes you and moves you from slavery into a journey that has a narrative arc and a moral trajectory to it to teach you something. Mm. And to become that something was really else. Big when Paul was preaching, wasn't it? When he said, like, when there was like to the unknown God and mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, well, what about a God of just everything? Mm-hmm. And people were like, that's insane. Like, that's really ridiculous. And often there's a kind of interpretation of the plagues in Egypt, isn't it? Of yeah, yeah. Each showing one. this is a God. He picks off all these tiny demigods who are just gods of individual things and yeah and it's interesting because again living in a christian western world the idea of just a god who created everything is just a foundation of our understanding of religion but for a lot of people through history the idea of just one single god over everything well that polytheism like john vaki is saying is tied to this bronze age pre-axial world Mm -hmm. where everything is kind of locked into its place and if those gods were to kind of shift and become the god of something else chaos would come like it would be uh, the undoing of things even though that's how the greeks thought about religion yeah i think it it carries over into Mm. greek mythology it kind of gets used by the greeks to tell stories though like their gods 
go through narratives mm. in Greek mythology. And I think that's an, a post-axial thing. They, they take their pre-axial gods and, and work them into kind of these stories and stuff. It's, I think it's also important to point out like the Genesis story is in direct competition with these pre-axial stories, these pre-axial gods, also the, the, like the Enuma Elish pre-axial creation myth, because God, he inaugurates his cosmic temple as the whole earth itself. Mm-hmm. And then he makes man in his own image, whereas humans came just by coincidence out of a battle and then they're there to kind of just to serve the gods yeah they just but, come out of a bit of mess but like john bevake says in this bit of text that i read out man is a co-creator with god like adam is is a gardener to tend the garden and he helps god in naming the animals and he his decisions influence the trajectory in which they go and for good or for ill so he can make mm-hmm. a bad decision and obviously get kicked out of the garden but there's this idea that the human is in the image of God and therefore has some sort of sovereignty and ability to make its own decisions and have some sovereignty over its its own destiny. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the strands, okay? That's this this biblical strand of the cosmic narrative. And this is hugely influential throughout the Western world. This is in, in all our movies, right? We go to the movies because we love this sort of thing. Okay, so cosmic narrative is basically Disney, Someone's in a place in their life. They want to strive for something better. They work hard at it. Lots of hilarious things happen. They fall in love. And then, like, <laughs> they attain what they wanted. They're a princess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and they they learn something along the mm. way. Like, there's a moral part of this as well. Oh, yeah. So that's strand number one. Strand number two comes from ancient Greece. And this comes to a head with Socrates and Plato. And let me read you another little bit, all right, from John Bavakey. Keep it short. Plato is not going to give a historical answer, like a cosmic historical answer. He's going to give a scientific answer because Plato is deeply influenced by the natural philosophers. And what Plato is, in fact, going to do is he's going to create the first psychological theory in history. With Plato, you can really see the beginning of not just science, but the beginning of cognitive science. Okay, so so Plato is going to have a strand which is more scientific Mm -hmm. and it's this idea that science or this kind of observation and deduction will enable you to see reality better and therefore climb the ladder out of ignorance and towards something greater Mm -hmm. so again you're not staying in the same place they all still have this in common that you do not stay in your strata you are able to maneuver yourself forwards Hmm. the israeli one has god taking you out of slavery with plato and socrates it is you can just use your intellect to look at the world around you i guess like pull apart ideas and look at them individually rather than everything just being one big static mulch yeah yeah um so socrates does this in that he is trying to get people to separate out what is true from what is salient all right so he'll go up to people and and say like what what are you pursuing at this point why is that salient to you Mm. why is that important can you explain what salient means so salient means kind of what is immediately important to you what's holding your attention yeah and, and what is true might not be what is holding your attention so 
for example, an advert may present to you something that looks really important, like this new shampoo, mm -hmm. but the truth behind how good it is might be an entirely different mm -hmm. matter. So Socrates... Or your attention is held by how like in love with someone you are. Yeah, yeah. Whereas actually that feeling makes you blank out all the fact that they're a bit of a loser. <laughs> yeah, potentially that's one way of saying it. And so there's this separation of what's true from what's salient. Mm. And... Because I guess maybe before then, it would just be a sort of like gut feeling that everyone would have like, cool, I feel like this is right and I like it and that must be that must be true. Yeah. And having someone say to you, actually, I think you should question that. But also, like, when it goes wrong, you don't know why it goes wrong. Mm. Like, it's when you're sacrificing for a rain guard and the rain doesn't come. You don't use science to go, well, you know, I can do an experiment and see that actually mm. this is the requirements for rain happening, blah, blah, blah. You just go, oh, like, I need to re-engage in the myth and sacrifice more valuable things. Even more, yeah, yeah. So again, literacy is an important catalyst for this happening. Mm -hmm. Because again, you can write down an idea. This is how I think something works. And you can come back to it later and go, oh, is that what I thought? Because actually I've observed these other things and now I can kind of cross that out and say, actually, that is not true. Mm -hmm. It was salient to me at the time, but it turns out to be not true. This is more true. Mm -hmm. We're using reason and observation here with... Um, I guess These as well, you can also read more about other people's points of view. Yeah. So you can sort of realise like, oh, well, that's the thing that's most important to me. But, oh, this person seems to have that same feeling as I do, but about a completely different thing. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm yeah. going to rethink about yeah what was salient to me. Mm -hmm. So this is all in the, in the vein of the natural philosophers of Greece. And one of the earliest natural philosophers uh, that we have fragments from is someone called Thales, and he makes some statements that demonstrate this shift in thinking. And one of the things that he says is, all is the moist. <laughs> all right. So gross. All is the moist. And uh, again, this is Viveki. He says, of course, there's controversy about all of this because it's fragmentary. It's old. But given how other people in the ancient world, like Aristotle, followed up on this, a plausible interpretation is... Everything is made out of water. Now, that's false. Everything isn't made out of water. It's not just scientifically false. It's kind of metaphysically false. Everything can't be made out of water. But putting that aside, think about what surrounds ancient Greece. Water. You dig in the ground, you'll hit water. What falls from the sky? Water. What does everything need in order to live? water what john bavek is trying to get you to see is that thales idea is kind of wrong but it's highly rational it's highly plausible what he's doing is he's using reason and observation to come up with a plausible explanation of what the underlying substance is behind everything and this is important he's not generating a narrative about some divine agent there's no story, there's no mythological narrative, there's no divine agents involved. That's not how he's trying to explain or understand. Instead, he's doing a rational analysis based on observation and he's trying to get at the underlying stuff that everything is made out and based of. Based on kind of tangible things that you can touch with your hands. Yeah, and so Thales is inventing, he says, is there any other word for this? He's inventing how to think scientifically. So it's like this, and this real shift with this Greek cultural movement of natural philosophers. 
away from telling stories to explain truths to being rational and and observing things to find truths. And what effect did this have on um, religion? Did this affect Christianity, the development of Christianity? Uh, I think that would be another episode. I think there's certainly lots of ideas about how Paul has has influences from like Greek philosophy and stuff. And, you know, he, he interacts with that entire world and there's potentially some some crossover in the in things that he does. But well, um, I don't want to get onto that in this episode. Okay. I, I want to... This is just kind of background information that there's three strands that affect the way that we think. Yeah. And one of the things that Plato does, and this will become important in a later episode as well, is he does things like he divides up the human psyche into three components, which he calls the rational man, the monster of appetite, and the socially conscious lion. And it's not important as to what those are, things are at the moment, but he's doing a scientific thing here. He's kind of compartmentalizing in a, in a psychological sense mm. to observe how these differing competing parts of our consciousness play out and he's using these kind of images to to depict mm, that it's like the first like cognitive model yeah the idea of having a model of what's possibly happening in yeah, the brain. yeah, yeah. Mm. and so this comes on to then the the, the parable that, that plato has of the cave mm. in which you can kind of cognitively realize things that will then lead you out of the cave and towards a a way of seeing the real world mm-hmm. and so the do you want to tell the story of the cave okay so there's a cave and there's some people who are held prisoner in it and their only understanding of what the world contains is being able to look at the wall of the cave they can only look in one direction look at the wall of the cave and they can just see 2d shadows that their captors cast on the wall so for them that's all that exists in the world and there's Mm. nothing else and even the idea that there's anything else to look at apart from just 2d black and white images one one really important thing about that is they're captivated about how salient the shadows are they don't know any other truth so their attention is focused on this thing that's captivating them okay and they so they really enjoy it they're really into the shadows on the wall. I don't know if they're enjoying it, but it's like they're <laughs> transfixed on it. They're like they find they think that there's meaning in those things. Okay. Or... Uh, so one prisoner one day gets free, and he um, kind of turns around and realizes, you know, that he can make his way out of the cave, yeah. or she, they can make their way out of the cave. So they start, yeah, kind of making their way out, and they can kind of see sunlight, which to them is like a whole new thing, and it hurts their eyes. It's really difficult to get out of the cave. Kind of feels like, is this worth it? What am I going towards? It looks really scary. Maybe I should go back to what I knew. Um, But they carry on and they have to keep stopping because they're getting blinded by the sunlight. And eventually they emerge and when their eyes get used to the sunlight, they see, you know, a 3D world full of more colour and kind of smells and tastes and sounds they could ever, ever have imagined and they realize that this is the truth this is what the world is actually like so then they go back into the cave to go and tell their fellow captives to say like you won't believe what is out there if you just come with me it's a difficult climb your eyes have got to get used to it it's a bit scary i don't really know what's going to happen when we get there but it's beyond your wildest imagination and they either don't believe 
them or they're they too, don't want they're to They're still too transfixed mm. on the shadows. Like, it's again, it's this thing about truth versus what's salient. It's like they, they're not interested in hearing about what's true or an alternative mm. because they're so transfixed by the, the importance of what's mm. in front of them. And that's really in terms of like today's, um, like how complicated the world is with you know, kind of fake news and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. isn't it? And there are so many things to hear about and believe and feel passionate about that it's, you know, when when you hear about kind of, you know, anti-vax movements and kind of the extreme end of all those kinds of things, people are just so fixated on it to even begin to change their mind to judge it and maybe think actually is this correct or there's for all of us there's a thing that mm. we're kind of enjoy yeah, you know yeah. being fixated by and enjoying well, the, the cave wall to seems back. to be like just in our hands now doesn't it it's like we're just staring it's instagram it's yeah it's we're just, tiktok we're, yeah we're not like we're not looking at any real world anymore we're like uh just looking at the shadows on our screens but so the point of this is like you can again break out from the cyclical world that you reside in and strive towards something else Uh, and you can do that by using rationality and logic now one thing that i i hope will become like uh clear from this is when we kind of transport these two two strands the the cosmic historical and the rational platonic ones into our Christadelphian culture, which is itself born out of a highly rational period of history. We're looking at the 1800s. This is like post-Newtonian physics, Newtonian worldview, cause and effect. Lots of rationality, uh, which leads to the Industrial Revolution and huge technological advances. Also the ability to be highly educated and able to analyze and and rationalize using highly scientific methods is now fully available to the Western world if you're in the right part of society. And so you see a clash of these two things. For example, the cosmic creation story, which uses this psychotechnology of a narrative to bring you a moral truth and a thing to learn is being intersected with in in our community like well how can we rationally make sense of this in terms of a natural philosophy like how do we compute this with dinosaur bones how do we Mm -hmm. compute this with evolution and carbon dating and and all those sorts of things and it seems to me that we're not aware that we just think that that's how you find the truth or we think that that's how the Hebrew Bible is conveying the truth when actually it might be trying to get at truth through a different technology than the technology that we're applying to it, which is kind of more of a platonic one. Okay, so the second strand of rationality can clash because we try and apply like a hyper-rational viewpoint of the Bible, which kind of runs you into trouble you have to do lots of mental backflips yeah, yeah. to yeah well you have to realize that it comes from a different strand of thinking mm-hmm. than the rational platonic mm-hmm. one it comes from this kind of way of delivering truth as a narrative that is cosmic and teaches you things mm-hmm. it's not trying to give you a 
natural philosophy of how things are like Thales is mm. it, it's doing something different it's invite it's it's telling a story so that you as kind of a, a follower of God can be drawn into the story and live your life through it and engage with it and become a co-creator in it almost mm -hmm. so how does the idea of a cosmic narrative is that something that potentially clashes when we try and look at the bible now N not no because that's what it is okay so that's that's something that makes sense to the way that we think and the way the bible is written yeah so yeah. what's so it's mainly that scientific bit mm -hmm. that is that has affected the way that we think and we try and look back on parts of the bible that weren't written with any of that in mind, mind so, yeah. yeah so what's the third strand so the third strand comes from india uh, in in buddhism and this is through the story of the buddha who is he's a prince in a palace and his father wants him to be kept pure and he only gets to see young people and he only sees fresh food and things and he's aware of the fact that there's a world outside the palace but he he's not ever taken out to see anything else and one night he he decides that he's gonna leave the palace and so he goes with his coachman and explores and he sees he just sees things he's never seen in his life before like somebody like princess jasmine in aladdin mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a similar thing isn't it <laughs> prince ali didi. so but the buddha he's whatever he's called before the buddha sees like a a sick person an old person and a dead person and like it completely rocks his entire world and he realizes that the palace is kind of more of a prison that doesn't mean he's connecting to reality so he goes and sits under a tree and decides to contemplate these things so there's this again this idea of of, of moving from one caste out of it to become something else and what he becomes is enlightened in Buddhism's terms. And so Buddhism takes you on a journey to a higher state of consciousness. That's where it's trying to get to. A place where you are more at one with the world and you can experience the reality of the world in this kind of a way. We're going to come back to Buddhism maybe in another episode to flesh it out a little bit more. But essentially, yeah, the Buddha is trying to move from one world to the next via this heightened state of consciousness. Plato is trying to get to a new world through rationality, as are the rest of the natural philosophers. And the Hebrew Bible is trying to get you to a new world through a moral cosmic narrative that leads you there. Now, interestingly, with Buddhism and with the Hebrew Bible, there's this kind of more of an embodied sense of getting to this new place. It involves more implicit knowledge, more maybe reading between the lines, finding what Ian McGilchrist calls the betweenness of things, which often stories have they're not explicit all the time they actually require some unfolding and experiencing and uh, maybe your life events kind of lead you back into a story you've heard and go oh that, maybe this is what they were getting at in that story and clearly buddhism is far more embodied in terms of you're very much being introspective on your whole embodied being and you're using that to be contemplative and as i said we'll, we'll look more into this in another episode can't really do it justice here 
Whereas Plato, this rational way of seeing things is more cognitive. And this will lead us to see where in Western culture, there becomes this separation of body and mind. And this could be one of the places in which that separation kind of cleaves. Now, I want to be clear and say that obviously Plato and the natural philosophers also used myth and story to get across their points, but there's an emphasis on rationality. The Bible also uses some sorts of natural philosophy in the way that it tells its stories, but the emphasis is on stories and similar things can be said for Buddhism. But they're kind of different flavors. They have different leanings. And the other thing that I want to say is when we're thinking about natural philosophy and science it's very very beginnings of this kind of concept we today have kind of taken this to the nth degree in terms of our rationality and scientific rationality in the west in the same way that we've taken to the nth degree the cosmic storytelling in things like disney movies and the marvel comics uh those sorts of things they're hyper these ways of of seeing truths and so we are in a culture where we're at the end of the trajectory of these ideas and they are even further apart than they were back in the days of uh, the natural philosophers or the Hebrew writers or even, even Buddha. They're kind of probably more closely tied together back then, but they've all gone off on their own trajectories and created their own bubbles and camps in which they are very distinctly now different from one another. But the main thing is probably that kind of the scientific branch. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is important for us when we're thinking about the dissonance that we have, particularly in the Christadelphian world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we get stuck with kind of creation stories. Because, yeah, the scientific world is trying to pick apart and atomize, like Plato is doing with the psyche. Like, let's separate it out, see what's what. The atomizing of it is to. I guess, understand it literally, whereas the cosmic narrative is not literal mm. in the same way that Plato is trying to find literality or truth. It's a different type of truth. Do you want to recap what we've talked about? Okay, so you've given a background of the axial revolution, which is just to show that humans don't just think in one way. They're not just born and thinking a certain way. Before 2000 BC, people thought in a completely different way. Um, and in a way that kind of meant that changing your position in life, expanding your mind and learning completely new and different things was not really possible. And then there was this sort of change in thinking and that brought out three things. So it brought out a cosmic narrative way of thinking in which you could change and there could be a, a story in which slaves were all freed and went on to be a great nation. What's another kind of Bible story? I guess um, like Joseph, Joseph isn't it? Yeah, 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 becomes kind of second in command yeah. of all Egypt. So you're not it's not just a like one of the Babylonian stories where something happens and the the good bit at the end of the story is everyone everything goes back to normal. It's the birth of yeah, the like the American dream and Disney, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then the second strand is Greek rationality, so like Socrates and Plato, beginning just the very, very first bits of scientific thinking. And obviously that's really, really influenced us because we live in a very kind of scientific world now and ever, the way we think about everything is very heavily influenced by science. So it's useful to look back at um, parts of the Bible that were written without that mindset. 
And the other one is Indian tradition of Buddhism and the idea of enlightenment, transcendence and embodied practices. And that's an interesting one in terms of particularly the way Protestants and to quite an extent the way Christadelphians have maybe lent very heavily on the second branch, which is science mm, and mm-hmm. study, and actually ignored that third mm. branch, which is all about embodied mm-hmm, mm-hmm. experience and enlightenment. Yeah, it's almost as if these three ways could be held in tandem, like the, the way in which you read the Bible could be obs- taken in the kind of the more of an embodied way of living through the narrative or through a rational way of picking it apart and looking at every single word's meaning and stepping through it to find like a formula biblical formula for things i mean i'd also end with saying one of the things i found useful to do as an exhortation more recently is less of a study that tries to dissect the text atomize it find links find yeah links and a linear way of of getting to a truth and instead just telling a story like either from the perspective of a character at the washing of the disciples feet or during the transfiguration and like embellishing the story from the perspective of one of the characters and living it through their eyes. And I found that to be really rewarding. And potentially, if the Bible is all about teaching you things through narrative, we're, we're neglecting the main modality <laughs> of the Bible, which is to tell stories. Mm-hmm. We don't do any storytelling. We just take the stories and we critically analyze them. And I think maybe telling the story just retelling the story and that's what they did at the i think about it that's what they did at passover isn't it it's like they didn't study the text they just they retell the story mm, to their and children they eat it and, and they, they eat it and they reenact it. it and it's embodied and it's not so cerebral but they learn things about yeah, it through that's doing interesting, it isn't it because there's loads of um festivals in the jewish calendar mm. but um not many in the kind of protestant christian calendar at all are there mm-hmm. Um, We're going to hopefully talk about Luther at some point, who obviously separates from Catholicism, and he is heavily influenced by Neoplatonism. So that we'll leave that as a cliffhanger for another. So he's influenced by that scientific strand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Okay, I hope that has been interesting. If at the end of this you're thinking, why are we talking about any of this? Please bear with us, because. as we move through these different things, I, I hope that it will kind of start to resonate at some point and, and we'll pick up on, on why this is important and what we should do because we now understand this. And we've hinted at some of those things already, but yeah. Sounds good. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.